This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Today is Martin Luther King Day in the United States, and today is actually Dr. King's birthday. He'd be 95 today. And you think so often, um, I wrote essays on Martin Luther King. He was just somebody that was on my dad's mouth and on television a fair bit. I was born in the early 70s, so you can imagine the shock of his assassination in Tennessee um, in 1968 was was something that was so significant and so prominent um, to speak of. I want to get most people have heard the I have a dream speech from Martin Luther King. I want to give you some of the mountaintop speech. It's a little bit different, but I think it speaks to where like volumes and miles, kilometers, if you will, of progress has been made uh, for the struggle for civil rights. But in 1968, nothing was guaranteed. Here's Martin Luther King in his last known speech on the day he was assassinated in the evening. This is the day he, he gave this speech on April 3rd of 68. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. That's Martin Luther King. And progress was made dramatically. I'm going to give you a stat that should sit with you much of the morning and much of the afternoon. In 1958, they did a survey in the United States. 44% of white people said they would move if a black family became their next door neighbor. They did this survey again in 1996. So this is almost 30 years ago. And that figure was 0.12%. It's not zero, but it's tremendous, tremendous progress. And of course, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. And without Dr. King doing what he did for so many years, it's probably impossible. We don't recognize probably Martin Luther King the way we do. Is there potential to you know, go further with it and be like the United States at some point in time. Why should where uh, someone, someone being born in their birthplace affect how it's influenced um, the struggle for equal rights and civil rights at that? I'm eager to bring on uh, Rosemary Sadler. She's the president of the Ontario Black History Society, and she's so much more than that. Hey, I'm honored to have you on. Thanks for the we, we organized this late last night. You responded, and I'm so glad to have you this morning. Well, thank you so much. And uh, let me just update you there. Um, I am the longest serving president of a provincial heritage organization in the country, <laughs> but mm. currently I am not the president okay. of the Ontario Black History Society. I was for 20, over 22 years. When you see the uh, the struggle and you hear Dr. King's words, it is remarkable. Um, I'm I'm not. I wasn't alive when Dr. King was on the planet, but I would make the point that he came he came so prominently in pop culture or in school. We were learning about him in an Ontario school when I was seven, eight, nine years old. Do you hope that's still the case or do you worry it isn't? I, I worry, frankly, about um, black history, black accomplishments, black achievements, black presence being taught in our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really what is missing for me. 
um, I, I'm, I'm really happy that you had the opportunity to learn about a wonderful figure like Martin Luther King Jr. But what it also says to me is that you were perhaps not learning about really important African-Canadian figures. And so, as you know, it's, it's a bit of a dichotomy here. We, we want to also remind people in this whole process, in the lead-up to February's Black History Month, that there is actually a distinct and important African-Canadian history as well. Um, but that doesn't rule out um, knowing and appreciating the significant role that Martin Luther King Jr. played. Well, I'm glad you said this. And I'm going to tell you, Rosemary, you're right on the money because I, I paid attention in history class. This wasn't like math class for me, Rosemary. Let me point that out right away. So when history or any sort of thing that shaped our world was was discussed, I was all ears. But I'll tell you that I didn't know who Lincoln Alexander was until deep into high school and probably mm-hmm. we need we need to that's we need a market correction on that and we should be teaching people about lincoln alexander or viola desmond a lot sooner at the same time we're talking about people like martin luther king or malcolm x i figure absolutely and you know just thank you for saying that because uh, among many things that i have worked on was a national recognition for uh, a day to be created in honor of Lincoln Alexander. And in fact, this coming Sunday, there will be a historic unveiling. I've been working on this for 10 years, over 10 years, of a bust of the Honorable Lincoln Alexander mm-hmm. at Queen's Park. In, and, and while he, um, you know, I don't know that we can compare him one-to-one as exactly as being the same person as Martin Luther King Jr., but he's homegrown. He was the first black vice regal in this country. He was the first black um, member of a federal parliament. And and he's really quite inspirational. So, you know, um, you're right. We do need to learn about so many uh, amazing people who have contributed to this country. I didn't realize, Rosemary, that Toronto, until yesterday in the daytime, that Toronto in 2018 um, has made it a yearly declaration of Martin Luther King Day. Ottawa has as well. But I'd like to know if you'd like to see more of a push either at the provincial level or the federal level um, to make this the same holiday um, and the same magnitude and and conversation point it is in the United States. Is that impossible or can we do more? Um, I I feel that um, if, if, if that's something that is important to people, I wouldn't personally be pushing for that. I've got the bust going. <laughs> and I'm, I'm hoping right. that the bust at Queen's Park is going to spark a whole lot of discussions. But I think that when you consider that we only have one national day named after one black person in this country, um, maybe there is room for more. And then the question is, yeah. should it be Martin Luther King or should it be somebody who was uh, more of a, uh, a Canadian figure. Certainly Martin Luther King goes beyond um, his national status. He is an international figure. He has been commemorated in places around the world, including Britain. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me, and I think it would be an addition to our knowledge base. But the, the focus for me always has been trying to make people a bit more aware of those people who have contributed since they arrived in this country beginning in 1604 before it was even a country. Lastly, you were you were a leader and an innovator in terms of getting Black History Month um, recognized in, in Ontario. I don't think that's un, I don't think that's a, uh, um, a controversial statement. You, you pushed um, and, and other people had to push. 
is it where it's at in in 23, 24 years into this century where it, it can be in terms of prominence in our school system on radio shows like this? Or are we doing enough or can we always do more? We can always do more. Um, first of all, um, I um, because of a, 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 an issue within the organization, uh, when I first became president, um, I had to seek the formal commemoration of February as Black History Month or lose it. And I did yeah. so with the City of Toronto, with the province of Ontario and nationally. It was through my initiative, through building on my um, creating a groundwork of, of interest. I had given over 2,000 presentations in schools and community organizations um, before ultimately getting to uh, even the federal level. Um, and around that same time, I also was working on other commemorations. So Black History Month wasn't the only one, but it is a significant one because what it says is that there are people of African origin who've been here for a long time. They've made a contribution. But the problem, unfortunately, yeah, for my, in my estimation, is that we don't, we still don't have a required Black History um, curriculum. Yeah. We still have, it's you can still be in school in Ontario and not necessarily learn about African-Canadians who might live, have lived a block away from where you are. Yeah, that's the that... point. I've been to St. Catharines and had, had given a presentation at a school and they didn't even know about Harriet Tubman and her presence two blocks from where the school was. That's concerning, um, among other things. So I, I hope we get I'm out of time, but I hope we can have more conversations about it potentially in February during Black History Month. I thank you so much for coming on this morning and I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, and good luck with your surgery next month. <laughs> Thank you. It's it's our healthcare system. What could go wrong? Uh, Rosemary Sadler <laughs> joining us about Martin Luther King Day. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Zero in right now on these protests that we have seen. Here's what uh, Myron Demke, I mentioned him earlier, the police chief, told Alex Pearson on the Alex Pearson Show on Friday. We always work towards striking the right balance and try to strike the right balance that we're uh, respecting people's chartered protected rights while ensuring things are safe. Um, and I think we are continuing to evaluate and adjust our response given the dynamics that are unfolding daily and weekly. You're seeing that evolution of our response. All right. So three protesters arrested at the scene. As I mentioned, I want to bring on Toronto criminal lawyer. He is Sharif Foda. Thanks very much for the time today, Sharif. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. What do you make of uh, the rights of uh, those being arrested? They won't appear in court till February. They weren't remanded in custody. Um, but are these valid arrests? So let me first start off by saying, um, you know, I'm glad to hear that none of them were held for bail. Mm-hmm. Uh, our Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects certain liberties. It uh, puts a great deal of emphasis on our uh, right to be free, to not be unlawfully detained, not to be unlawfully arrested, and also also to express ourselves under Section 2B. I, I don't want to comment specifically on any of uh, the three individual cases, but I can tell you I am concerned that the police thought uh, that it could unilaterally uh, ban protests at um, in public locations. My understanding is that the overpass has sidewalks. So uh, unless the protesters are impeding traffic, and there's a lot of case law about um, protesters who are impeding traffic or access to private places uh, who can be arrested for mischief, unless they're doing that. I don't know what the basis is for the police to uh, determine that certain public locations are uh, protest-free zones. 
Is there is there a case to be made as well? They isolated this Avenue Road and, and 401 area, Sharif, but they didn't talk about protests at other overpasses or at other entrances um, because of the proximity to to being a heavily populated Jewish neighborhood. I guess what I'm saying is it's frustrating, I think, that the police chief is saying you can do this in this part of the city, but not in that part of the city. That's not really what the law is meant to do. That's right. And uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the city belongs to everyone. The country belongs to everyone. Uh, We'd be going down a slippery slope if we started saying, oh, well, you know, this neighborhood is off limits or Mm -hmm. this particular intersection is off limits. Um, You know, we we saw during the Freedom Convoy that there were lots of um, uh, public locations that were chosen for protests that were uh, inconvenient. Uh, that had certain political significance. Uh, and really the issue that the police should be dealing with is public safety. It's one of those scenarios as well where um, I, I do think there's an element of people wondering what's allowed and what's not. And I'd make that the point for the protesters as well, because we're we're just creeping up to the line and everyone's going to have a different definition of something that's hateful, something that's if I said to 10 people, tell me something that's anti-Semitic, tell me something that's Islamophobic, we'd all get different answers. So the law isn't necessarily crystal clear on these things, is it? Absolutely. And what I'll tell you is, you know, there is a um, long history of people protesting at provocative areas. Um, sometimes police make arrests, sometimes they don't. Uh, I think the and, you know, you mentioned earlier that the Canadian Civil Liberties Association called um, the chief of police's, uh, you know, sort of unilateral ban or at least his announcement yeah. that there was a ban con- concerning I think really when you're getting close to the line and there are going to be restrictions on uh, protests, it's really not up to the police to do it unilaterally to say, hey, this area is a no-go zone. What we should be seeing are applications in court for the court to decide um, whether or not a a protest should be permitted or not, because you can have injunctions. We've seen this before where uh, interested parties can apply for injunctions uh, to get a court ruling. So there's clarity. What what you really don't want to see are, is unclear, is a lack of clarity, and then people getting arrested, and then later on arguing, oh, you know, they trampled my rights, they hurt me, they arrested me roughly, or whatever. We want to avoid those situations. Um, there obviously was a protest in Montreal at Melanie Jolie's home. That is one thing that sort of kind of steps over the fence, um, and not very casually as well. Setting up a tent, there's a loudspeaker there. This is what bothered me a lot during the pandemic, uh, Sharif, was the idea that go to somebody's office, demonstrate where you want. That's fine. But people's homes are their homes, are they not? Well, you know, there actually is a long history in Canada for protests at politicians' homes. Um, You may remember there was a protest at Ralph Klein's home in 2002 where Greenpeace activists climbed his Mm -hmm. house and installed solar panels. Police dealt with that without making any arrests. In 2003, 2010, and 2012, uh, protesters uh, for various causes protested at Jean Charest's home. And um, there were Greenpeace activists that also protested at 24 Sussex at um, Prime Minister Harper's home at the time. So there is a long-standing history of protests at people's homes. Yeah. It's true during the pandemic, we did see um, sort of a more polarized uh, debate about where protests can occur. And you may recall that Parliament passed legislation aimed at trying to uh, protect health workers from yeah. harassment and, and these kinds of things. So we are entering into, I think, an era uh, in Canadian um, politics uh, where uh, people are more and more concerned about uh, where people can protest, and protesters are more and more 
uh, willing to uh, go to provocative places. That's yeah. not to say that it's necessarily illegal, but we do need to find a balance. Yeah, they're, they're certainly emboldened. Sharif Foda is a Toronto criminal lawyer. Thanks very much for the time today. We'll chat again. Thanks for having me. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Eric Cam is an economics professor at TMU University. He joins us now. Do you have to brave the cold to teach your students today, or are you uh, snug as a bug in a rug at home? Well, uh, that's an interesting question because I was approached by my boss a little while ago and said, how would you like to teach your courses online this semester? And I said, given the winter weather, I said, that would be a wonderful idea. And now before you think I'm just a pampered academic, although you'd be right, right, what I am also in this case is a bit of a bargain to the taxpayer because my sections are both 1,000 students. So for my small salary... I teach 2,000 students this semester, and if you actually divide money by value, that's not so bad for the taxpayer, Greg. No, I suppose not, but I'm concerned about you promoting Toronto Today and other uh, shows on 640 Toronto virtually as opposed to in person to 18, 19, 20-year-olds. We need that younger demo, and um, mm-hmm. and you're letting us down by being at home. But I, it's not my call. It's not my, I don't want to put it, any oh, undue influence there. on you. What? Au contraire, uh, mi amigo. Because both the Greg Brady Morning Show, Toronto Today. That's not the name. Okay, now you got the name. Shows, yeah, it's Toronto Today. <laughs> that and a couple of other shows are on my course outline as required listening and not just my segments. So I am firmly in place as a flag bearer for this station. Fascinating. All right. So we've got rising unemployment, got a housing crisis. We know both those things are true. Yesterday on CTV, Immigration Minister Mark Miller finally kicked the door open slightly and said the government is considering imposing a cap on the number of international students. I want you to listen and then we'll talk about it. Here's what he said yesterday. Well, I think we need to get our own house in order federally. Uh, We need to be doing our jobs in making sure that we have a system that actually makes sure people have the financial capability to come to Canada, that we're actually verifying offer letters, so really getting our, 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 our house in order, and then looking at this in a little more granularity, looking at where provinces have not necessarily uh, had robust discussions with their designated learning institutions, particularly those that are profiting off the system. The steps that I announced in the fall were very much preliminary, making sure the federal government was doing its job, and now it's time for us to have a conversation about the volumes and the impact that that is having in certain areas, uh, for example, on housing. It isn't the one-size-fits-all solution to addressing all of the housing problems in Canada, um, but this is certainly in some areas contributing to some of the, the, the pressure that we're seeing. All right, Dr. Cam, I, I, you're not seeing it quite as much at your level, and I don't think we're seeing it quite as much in universities, but in the community college system, this is rife. These places are called diploma mills. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of, of violators in the college system. When he lays that out there, I do think the province bears a good chunk of blame for this. But provinces don't issue student visas. The federal government does. Is this two levels of government that both should be castigated for allowing this to happen? Uh, I think you're also forgetting about the university sector, which I admit pays my salary, but is not exactly scot-free here. I talk to international students and not just at my school. And I can tell you that they feel absolutely hung out to dry because they get offered the moon and the stars come to Toronto. It's a multicultural city. Wherever you are, you're going to find your people here to speak your language and keep up your culture. But then they get here and they have nowhere to live. They are underfunded and they are frustrated. And so I think a lot of people here have dropped the ball. And it's and you talk about diploma mills, um, I think there's a little bit of that 
across the system. People saw international tuition as a get rich quick scheme. And yeah. for a long time, it was. The problem is now, like everything else that gets abused, eventually people start to look up and go, wait a minute, you've sold us a bill of goods. And so this revolution was inevitable, Greg. And I think if actually if students had a louder voice, this would even be more present. But many students don't know what to do. And they just go home. Who's doing the selling? Is it the universities themselves or are, are there recruitment, um, you know, basically farms, if you will, that are getting all these students from other countries to to buy in and then they get here and it ain't what they promised? It's both. It's both at the university and the college level. I mean, you know, there's a lot of recruitment and it's international. We go, I mean, at TMU, I think we go to uh, 20 or 30 different countries selling our programs and we're not special. U of T in York and, and all the schools, all the community colleges do the same thing. But yes, there are also professional recruiters at some level. TMU doesn't use them, but many of the other schools I won't mention do. And they are just paid to go out and find students and bring them mm -hmm. here uh, on international dollars. And you realize that that's now about $20,000, $25,000 for about every $5,000 a Canadian pays. So it is a tremendous amount of money and an injection into the school. But these poor people often end up in shelters. These students yeah. have nowhere to go and there's nobody to help once they're here. Yeah, it, it has been a horrific, horrific problem. And I wish it had got more attention. Um, but other things have, have uh, kicked it aside. Um, I want to ask about Queen's University. They're eyeing uh, what they describe as drastic cutbacks to keep their doors open. The last school we saw um, put this out there was Laurentian in Sudbury. And they followed through on some of these drastic cutbacks to, doesn't matter, varsity sports or, or some uh, programs that would help even international students. What do you think is fair? And, and do we make the same, should we make the same argument for Queens that we make for the city of Toronto? You're like, wait a minute, you guys should look inside the house. You guys should look under the hood of the car before you decide, well, we're going to either hike tuition or we're going to, uh, to limit programs that would actually be enticing to students. This is a great school with a lot of heritage. Not only is it a great school, but it is a school to which I pay tuition, as you may or may yeah. not know, because my daughter is a freshman there. Um, so I can't believe there's any trouble given that I paid my bill. But um, yeah, it's a wake up call, I think, is all it really is. I mean, people said for years, no Canadian university can go broke. It's impossible. And then Laurentian showed us that we were wrong. I read the school statement and then I read the statement that the students put out. And really, I think it's just a lot of flag waving on both sides. But I do think that if there's any sector, and I guess it's because I'm in this one, I say it, if there's any sector that needs to look under the hood and start getting rid of duplication and services that are just completely unnecessary, it is the university sector. If you look at the growth in salaries paid, and I, I don't want to make anyone at my school mad, but nothing has bloated quicker than senior administrators yeah. at our university and every university. I think it's just a wake up call that for Queens and for every other school, let's mm. not be Laurentian. Let's be proactive. Let's look under the hood. Let's eliminate spending that just doesn't have to be there. I think you could eliminate millions, Greg, millions of dollars just on mm. the first glance at the books. This really wouldn't be that hard. They Universities, as you know, I hate to say it, models of inefficiency. So let's Let's just use the time now and make it better. Eric, loved our chat. Thanks very much for this today. I got a blast. We'll talk next week.
Stay healthy. Eric Camp joining us, uh, economics professor at TMU. Some great stuff uh, to chew on there. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Our guest of the morning uh, is our new crime specialist for 640 Toronto and across uh, the chorus uh, company here. And he is a former Toronto police detective, Hank Itzinga. It's great to have you in. Thanks very much for coming in. And, and now you're you're part of the family. Appreciate you being on. It's amazing to be here, Greg. Thank you very much. It does. It doesn't mean you won't get tough questions or get. I, I get the. I get beatdowns uh, verbally two or three times a week, and I'm I'm part of the family. So be ready for it. I think you can handle it. I think uh, I've got some thick skin, so uh, it shouldn't be an issue. Now we got a lot to get into uh, in terms of uh, the next hour or so, but I'm gonna I'm gonna want to shatter a myth or prove a myth right away. On days like this, Hank, when it's minus 19 wind chill. N- nobody's going to get a parking ticket. Nobody's going to be stopped for speeding. Or is that a myth? Like, you know, like nobody wants to test that with the with a one twenty on the DVP in the next ten minutes because a cop. The last thing a cop wants to do is stand there and give a ticket at a window when it's minus thirty out. I, I think the police, just like anybody else, would prefer to stay in their cars <laughs> with the heaters going and uh, and stay comfortable. Uh, you know, there's an old saying, a good police officer never gets cold and never gets hungry. And that's definitely <laughs> going to apply today. So, yeah. OK, so it, something extreme. Again, they're out there to enforce the law. but And we're asking people to drive the speed limit at all times. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But nonetheless, be really cautious on those roads today and, and let the let the good men and women of the Toronto Police Services uh, do do work. That's not about cutting parking tickets and and speeding tickets. How did you deal with extreme cold uh, on the beat in your first few years? I always uh, dressed appropriately for worst case scenarios, uh, long johns, uh, winter coat, and it might not be comfortable, but you never know when you're going to end up standing outside of that squad car in yeah. the freezing cold temperatures or even the heat in the summer, right? Carrying that extra 25 pounds of equipment around your waist on, as well as a bulletproof vest, it's not comfortable at all. And usually by the end of your shift, your clothing is soaked right through. So... You just have to grin and bear that. And like I said, during the winter, just prepare mm. for the worst case scenario. Um, I want to ask about your, your very first year in uh, in law enforcement. What what year did you start and what what sent you into this line of work? What, what about the career enticed you at the time, Hank? I started in October of 1989 with the Toronto Police Service. And it's something I wanted to do ever since my childhood. Uh, and I especially wanted to get into investigative work. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, um, I, I came to the realization that I wanted to do investigative work. I didn't realize at the time that it was police work that would take me there. But as I got older and got through my teens, um, I came to realize, you know, the police service is where the finest investigators are and where they're, they're developed. And very early on in my career, uh, attending murder scenes when I was working in 14 division in in uniform. I was so impressed by the work of the homicide investigators and Mm -hmm. I decided that's exactly what I want to do. And so I always followed a investigative path in my career as much as I could. And I was very fortunate in 2005 to join the homicide squad as a detective and I never left and eventually retired officially just last week after spending five years as the inspector in charge of that unit. Congratulations, because that's uh, it. And people say it, right? It's not a it's not a job. Sometimes it's a calling. Sometimes it's a career. You knew what you wanted to do very early and right. made an entire career out of it. It, it, it deserves merit. Exactly. I'm, I was very fortunate uh, to identify that from a very early age and very fortunate to identify very, very early in my career which stream I wanted to go into. 
Um, Toronto's changed so much since 1989 when you started. I'm looking at a population, and this is this is the GTA um, when there really wasn't a GTA in Toronto, but it it, it documents 3.7 million people in the Greater Toronto area in 1989. We're a lot closer to six million now. So um, law enforcement's changed. What are your recollections of those first? couple years and again you're dealing almost exclusively with toronto proper and not a lot of the a lot of the suburbs as well right i've always spent my time in downtown divisions and where we are situated right now is a great example right look uh, what was here back in 1989 1990 absolutely nothing mm-hmm. and i worked in 14 division which is on the west side of downtown toronto uh, for the first 10 years of my career and there's literally nothing south of king street and now yeah. a huge amount of the Toronto population is down there in Liberty Village and the condo developments uh, along the south end of that. That was all old abandoned factory buildings. And when I started it in 1990 in 14 Division, uh, we were in the middle of a very bad crack epidemic across North America. And that caused us a lot of issues uh, on the downtown streets. So things have evolved quite a bit. Uh, the city certainly changed. Uh, like you said, the population has absolutely exploded and just the condominium developments as an example, uh, create a whole lot of new issues for policing, right? The, the high rise, uh, access and the people living in concentrated areas in the city, um, certainly affects the way police have to do I mean, to, business. to go up, Hank, to a, a 24th floor apartment or condominium building um, and investigate something, whether it's a domestic or whether it's a suspect hiding out, that's got its complexities, doesn't it, as opposed to, um, you know, a, a standalone house. You've got thousands of people living yeah. within, within one building and people from all walks of life and all with different needs and issues in their lives where they intersect with police. Uh, anywhere from very wealthy people uh, experiencing white-collar crime to marginalized folks uh, living in subsidized housing, sometimes in, in the same buildings. And you never know what you're going to be walking into when you go into one of those buildings. I'm sure our listeners are going to react to to what you mentioned, the idea that anybody would say in 2023-24 um, that a city has a crack cocaine epidemic. That tells you we've we've sort of trans, you know, transgressed a lot of eras in the process and it does tell you it's that's 34 years ago but you're right it was um it almost was the drug of of choice in terms of dealing and using on a lot of streets it was famously the mayor of washington right you remember marion barry was caught on video buying some so it was it was a thing back then i'm forgetting that it was and you reminded me it was it was a thing back then and firearms were an anomaly back then you know if uh Somebody in the Toronto Police Service, whether it be in 23 Division in in North Etobicoke or out in 42 Division in North Scarborough, arrested somebody with a firearm, you literally would drive from downtown Toronto up to 23 Division to look at the gun. It was uh, it was such a unique unique type of incident. And nowadays, it's a, unfortunately it's a nightly incident, right? The uh, the number of shootings and the number of firearms being taken off our street by the police. So you were shocked in 1991-92 that somebody would be armed. You'd be you'd be a lot less conscious of it pulling somebody over or or stopping somebody that was a suspect in a crime. You'd be a lot less conscious 30 years ago that they'd be armed. Exactly. So that translates into different tactical uh, procedures and mm. the way that police officers have to pull over vehicles as, mm. as an example right now, 
or if they're simply talking to people or responding to a fight at a nightclub, they always have to be cognizant that somebody that they're dealing with could be armed with a firearm. It's uh, it's pretty prolific out there. We, we've got uh, Hank Atzinga here joining us, our uh, 640 Toronto crime specialist. We announced that this morning, uh, 34 years as a Toronto police officer. Got a great question on um, what your references are, what your recollections are of the Paul Bernardo case. That's a fascinating question. I remember being a university student sitting around when um, when the arrest was made and me and my six roommates, I live with six, that was a mistake, uh, but seven of us just sitting there watching the TV and our jaws were dropped that they finally got him. What, what do you remember about it? Well, I, I grew up in Burlington. And yeah. I, I, so I very distinctly remember when Leslie Mahaffey uh, was kidnapped. And then, of course, Kristen French uh, kidnapped and both murdered. And, and Leslie was found encased in concrete out in Niagara region. But Kristen French was dumped uh on a, by a side road in Burlington. And I still ride my bike down that side road every, every day uh, during the summer. And every time I go past that spot, I think about that. But I was seconded to the Forensic Identification Unit in 1991, 1992. And some of the officers in that unit who were working there full time were working on the Bernardo investigation. Uh, coming into work in Toronto every morning and then driving out to Niagara region to help process that scene. So it was fascinating to hear the ins and outs about what was going on there. And of course, it's still uh, very difficult to think about it and uh, think about the terror that that guy caused, not only in our city, in Scarborough, mm. uh, as a Scarborough rapist, but the trauma that those young women uh, went through uh, when he abducted them and murdered them. Just to reference the timeline too, um, Bernardo was briefly interviewed by a sergeant in uh, May of 1992 looking for the Scarborough rapist, as you referenced, and they didn't think he was a suspect. Um, they let him go. And then in 1993, February 93, um, the Metro Toronto Sexual Assault Squad investigators interviewed Carlo Homolka. So this was Homolka in essence, for lack of a better term, Hank, coming clean, looking to make a deal, talking about the abuse of her from Bernardo, and uh, and then things you know moved very quickly after that in February of 1993. So we're at we're almost at about 31 years from that arrest, and then the the, the publicity of the trial, etc. Yeah, the uh, the years certainly blurred together, and I, I I do remember the trial and John Rosen representing Paul Bernardo, and then the dangerous offender application after the trial, mm-hmm. where the judge essentially cut it short and said, "I know you're a dangerous offender. Everybody knows you're a dangerous offender. There, there's really nothing to debate here." And of course, uh, Bernardo being interviewed in the penitentiary several years ago when his name came up as a possible suspect for. Uh, another murder in Scarborough. I forget the name of the uh, of the victim mm-hmm. right now, but uh, and of course now being moved to medium security and and still coming up in the news, and you've got a whole new generation of people who weren't around uh, when he was committing his crimes who are saying, you know, who's this Paul Bernardo guy, and what did he do? So I teach uh, at a community college with a lot of young folks who are 20, 21 years old. And it's always interesting to relate the story of Paul Bernard to to them if they don't know exactly what happened. How many have a sense of it? It's a little like you hear something in your head, like I couldn't tell you the year of Jack the Ripper, but I hear the reference and I know kind of, or the Boston Strangler. And so when when a criminal is that notorious, um, you, you, you do have a sense that, okay, this is obviously somebody that did something terrible. What's what's sort of the the ratio of people who 
feel like they know who the person is, but but you fill in the you fill in the blanks for them. I think uh, unless they're 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 too shy to admit it, everybody's heard of him. Okay, uh, not everyone knows the the specifics. Um, like you said, it's it's thirty years ago, and I'm dealing with with kids who are nineteen, twenty years old, and certainly he's infamous enough where they where they would have heard of him. But knowing the actual geographic locations where these things happened and the victims and the victims' names, uh, it's I, I think he'll be notorious for generations to come. Uh, if you contradict that with somebody like Mark Moore. Uh, and, and Mark Moore, when he killed four people in Toronto in 2010, and that was one of my investigations uh, through 2010 and 2011. And if I say, who's heard of Mark Moore? Very few people. I haven't, no. Don't remember. Very few people remember that name. And who? And lay out for our audience, if you can, in 30, 45 seconds, who he was and what he did. Uh, Mark Moore uh, shot and killed four people in a 76-day period from September of 2010 to November of 2010. And uh, I ended up investigating the fourth of those four murders. And when we linked them all together, uh, my team ended up taking over all four of those murders and worked that investigation through 2011 Mm -hmm. until we laid a series of murder charges for murder charges, first-degree murder in October of 2011, uh, as well as numerous shootings. And we convicted him and all of the accused involved in that of everything. Hank and Singh is with us in studio. Uh, just to reset that on 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. We're going to have him all the way till the top of the hour at 9 o'clock. He is our 640 Toronto crime specialist and, and lovely to have him in studio with us. Um, I know you say you don't like uh, early morning alarms, but we might be calling you at 5.45 a.m. some morning going, Hank, we got to get your read on this. I, I, great question on text 416-870-6400 about cold cases. And it kind of asks you to sort of lay out the highs and lows of cold cases. One famous one just in the last couple of years was the announcement that um, the cases of both Susan Tice and Aaron Gilmore were solved, and and both those were um, they they uh, Toronto police arrested a 61 year old. This is back about 14, 15 months ago. Uh, are there a lot of again ups and downs with thinking we're just at the end of a trail here? It's like you see in a movie or television show where a, a, a cop's frustrated beyond belief that they can't get any closer, and then all of a sudden, boom, snap of a finger, something comes right to you. How does it work? Well, the Tyson Gilmore case, uh, as well as the Christine Jessup case, uh, fell to our cold case unit, which was contained within the homicide squad, which, like I said, I was running between 2018 and uh, 2024. And the advent of genetic genealogy uh, really made both of those cases uh, come to fruition. And the interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize is both of those processes for those cases were started at the same time. And the Christine Jessup case took about nine months to put together through genetic genealogy and identify the suspect who was deceased by the time we figured that out. Uh, But it certainly more than exonerated the already exonerated Guy Paul Moran. So uh, that was an interesting case to bring to closure. And the Tyson Gilmore case was, like I said, the the genealogy process started at the same time, but it took over a year and a half to narrow down the suspect in that case through the family trees. And he was still alive when we identified him and he was arrested 
um, and, and charged, and he's now pled guilty to both of those murders. So the tool of genetic genealogy is is an amazing thing. It's it's relatively new, and I think it's going to come into play not just in cold cases, but in live cases as well. Is it just obvious that you get you get to keep cases open with new technology in you know this year, the last few? And you'd absolutely have to close the book in 1990-91. There just be there would be no way, no technology, no way forward. And when that when that file slams shut, that's probably it. And that's a terrible thing to have to admit to to loved ones, right? Because they get, you know, I we can't we can only imagine, right? You and I, but you get such closure. It's it's just something that it, that may take 20 years, 25 years, but you do get closure when you find out more about it. It's definitely closure for the investigators. I don't know if it's so much closure for the loved ones. I, I don't think that trauma ever goes away. Uh, it's like that surreal moment when you're in court after a uh, after mm. a trial and the jury comes back and guilty. Okay, you think you'd be somewhat euphoric and the family would be euphoric, but that doesn't happen. It's um, it, it's a moment that's nice to have, but your loved one is still gone and the perpetrator is going to be behind bars, hopefully for a long time, uh, but it doesn't bring anybody back. No, it doesn't bring anybody back. I, I guess I mean it It um, it answers more questions, and uh, that's, that's you're right. That's a little solace, but it does provide, yeah, you're right, relief is not the right word. The, the grief's compounded, but at least there's closure in terms of the knowledge loop that was just broken along the way, and you're thinking, who did this? Where did they go? Did they do this to anybody else? There's a little more of those answers. There is, but there is very little happiness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, we've got more time with Hank Atzinga. Uh He's our uh, new 640 Toronto crime specialist. Uh, after 34 years on the force, retired a couple months ago. So we're taking your questions about policing uh, and about uh, law and order in general. 416-870-6400. We'll take a couple calls, a couple more text messages. A reminder um, for weather is freezing. Minus 21 right now is the uh, wind chill. Minus 13 current temperature. Um, and people are asking about this Buffalo Bills playoff game later today. Still bitterly cold. Um, I love this statement. An, unseized, uh, an unseasonably cold air mass, but I read that as unreasonably. And I'm like, yeah, the, the, it is unreasonable. But you live in Buffalo, so you'd expect unreasonable weather. A high temperature of 18 Fahrenheit, which is minus 11 Celsius. And they're going to get four to eight more inches of heavy snow before the game starts at 430 this afternoon. Um, Hank, is that a good assignment for a police officer? Buffalo Bills game later today, or are they like, no thanks? I think... <laughs> <laughs> Well, thankfully, you can now buy electric long johns and, and gloves and socks to keep yourself warm, and those hot pockets uh, do wonders as well. But still, uh, I suppose if you're a football fan and, and, and a police officer, it's a, not a bad little gig. It's not bad. I often, I, th- I think uh, I, I had a friend of mine who was an officer who often got the, uh, the Scotiabank Arena detail. So I'm like, it's all the concerts. And so, like he goes, yeah, you'd be amazed what you'd get to see, but then you got to be hyper aware of this thing happening at the game and then work with their own security uh, to make sure that you're not stepping on their toes and vice versa. Right. You can't, uh, you can't watch the stage. You have to watch the audience. <laughs> right. So yeah. Uh, same with the games, you know, you're not, unless you're that police officer sitting by the penalty box uh, facing the ice, you, your concern is going to be the audience members. I certainly wanted to get to issues of um, the, the protests in a little bit, but we got some great questions that I, I want to keep at. So I'll, I'll hold it for a few minutes. Let me first ask you about uh, body cams because they came into effect in Toronto. I think that was sort of late era Mark Saunders as chief. 
um, that the idea was there in, in terms of late 20, uh, more mid 2020 going into 21. But I'd also make the point that it's what I see now, and I especially see it with the protesters, is all these phones. Like, like you're under tremendous video scrutiny, more so than ever before as a cop, uh, when, you're, when you're out there on the beat. Everybody's got their phone out, and you know there's almost an element of they can say, well, I'm protecting myself, so I'm videotaping you. But there's an element of, of, a, of a provocateur aspect to some, to some people who bring out the phones. So it's changed policing, hasn't it? The fact that we'll see everything you have on your camera, but we're also going to see things that, that, that bystanders and, and, and citizens record. Absolutely. It's, you can't do anything in this city anymore without it being caught on camera. Uh, and again, dating myself, go back to the days in my early start in the homicide squad. And if a murder was captured on video, the entire office would come in and, and watch it. And wow, you know, how lucky you were to get that on video. Nowadays, if it's not on video, it's, yeah. it's uh, an anomaly. So the body cams and the advent of the body cams and the in-car cameras, fantastic from an evidentiary perspective. And like you said, the citizens out there with their cameras filming, uh, helps and it can be a hindrance sometime if they're actually obstructing the police trying to do do their job but a great example is that incident at the protest a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. where the citizens camera footage was released and it appeared that the officer was kneeling on a protester's neck which of course is a big no-no and the police are able to go back to their body cams and they're in car camera footage and say, no, from our angles, that's not what happened. And so mm-hmm. it can s- save police officers. It can certainly get them in trouble as well. Uh, but anywhere, you, like I said, anyone, not just police, anywhere in the city, you should be aware you're probably on camera. Could it make a, a less experienced officer, uh, male or female, um, more hesitant and less willing to, to act when they, they should act than maybe 20, 25 years ago in your interpretation? I think there will be more avoidance uh, Mm. to act sometimes. And a lot of officers hopefully will not hesitate and they should be well-trained enough that they know when to act and what they should do and what they have to do anyways. But absolutely everything that you do in your career as a police officer, every action that you take is under scrutiny. It's it's going to end up in court in some way or another, guaranteed from a parking ticket to a murder or arrest. Do you think if we privately polled not just officers in Toronto but all police officers, they'd more than they'd be more likely to welcome um, the body cams? In essence, saying, "I know what I'm doing. I'm going to do it by the book, and this will exonerate me uh, when the evidence gets seen." There'd be there'd be probably more officers thinking that then they would, oh, I don't want that because I might get, like, the, again, the videotape usually doesn't lie, as we've documented. Absolutely. It's the number of times I've seen police officers in the witness box in court who turn to the judge and say, Your Honor, you're not going to believe this, but here's what happened. And it, they can be unbelievable stories, but now you simply hit play. And a lot of police officers, I think, were very leery and hesitant about the body cams and the in-car cameras when they first came in. And there are some mm-hmm. growing pains, but by and large, I think they're finding it's mm. 
it's helping helping them more than hurting them. Would you mind taking a couple of phone calls from uh, the public? Not at all. Okay, let's uh, let's get to the phones. 416-870-6400. Got time for a couple now and maybe a couple after the break uh, before we uh, move it on to Anthony Fury coming up at 9 o'clock. Let's get to Tom. Tom, uh, thanks very much for the phone call. Your question for uh, Toronto, uh, uh, 640 Toronto Crime Specialist, Hank Azinga. Hi, Hank. How are you? Good morning, Tom. I'm great. Thank you. Quick question I ask you. I just want to know what your thoughts are on carding with the increase in crime, increase in population. Do you think it is an advantageous benefit for the police to help kind of control or see what's going on in the city? We've seen recently that uh, the police uh, chief just outlawed uh, protesting on Avenue Road Bridge. Not, I agree or disagree with it, but don't you think that that tool would be something beneficial to the police? I'll hang up and hear your thoughts. Thanks, Tom. Okay, well, two different issues there. Uh, number one, carding, which of course was banned by uh, police boards and police commands around 2013. And there was certainly a drop of intelligence that was gathered in the subsequent years after that. But there's smarter ways of doing it without uh, identifying marginalized communities and targeting marginalized communities and treating them unfairly. So. The loss of intelligence, I think, has been made up for through new technologies. And as far as the protests go, uh, again, I go back to my earlier point where everything is on camera, right? The Eaton Centre protest from a couple of weeks ago where the protester basically made a threat in front of the police officers and was captured very clearly on cameras. Mm -hmm. So is that more valuable than the information that would be captured during a, a, a carding uh, process, which could target somebody unfairly, uh, I think it is. And so, uh, like I said, for the first couple of years after the carding ended, there is definitely a, a bit of a mis misstep uh, in intelligence gathering, but we don't see the effect so much anymore. I wouldn't ask you to, I think it's unfair because we didn't see the whole video, but so I wouldn't ask you to dig in on, on the officer or the policy, but when you saw that video, were you, how did you, how did that make you feel in terms of, okay, there's no follow-up conversation or there's no, that you better not say that again to the, to the, um, to the offender with the, with the, with the hate speech and with the threat. What did you think? You know, the, the, the police are in a difficult position there where they have to keep the peace and, but having that protest occur on private property in the Eaton Center, I think should never have happened. Uh, yeah. And whether they were caught off guard or not. Uh, or whether the Eaton Center, you would need the Eaton Center management to be on board to say, okay, we, we don't want this in here, yeah. uh, consider them trespassers and let's get them out. And it might have avoided the whole situation by heading it off at the pass. Very happy to have uh, 640's uh, new crime specialist, Hank Zinga in with us, uh, joining us 34 years uh, with the Toronto Police. I'll read you this text. Thank you to your guests for as many years of service. I have met many officers active duty and retired. And I always thank them for what they do every day. That's how you get our speeding tickets also to return to our first time. It's, I did, he didn't say that. It's a thankless job. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. I'm grateful people still want to become a police officer. Um, we were talking just last night when we were chatting about recruitment. And um, it, again, you you want to do this from the time you were a little boy. You followed it through and, and lived out um, a, a career, not just an occupation. What is recruitment like now? Is is there enough incentive? I know that it was a controversy when the province changed um, the, the college requirement to go into police school, um, to go to Elmer, for example. What do you see in terms of recruitment and what can we do to make sure we get the best men and women possible suited for the job, Hank? 
Well, if you recall, about five years ago, there was a hiring freeze as well as a promotional freeze, and we fell way behind in the number of members that we had in the Toronto Police Service. And that takes a lot of work to catch up with that. That's a 10 or 15-year plan to try and get enough people in and trained. And it's not just a Toronto problem. It's a North American problem now, uh, especially after the George Floyd murder down in the United States. Uh, A lot of people look at the career and the job and say, "I, I don't want to be any part of that. So like I said, I I do teach a college class and uh, on day one, I ask, what does everyone want to do uh, in their life? And these are 18, 19 year old kids uh, straight out of high school taking a police foundations program and the vast majority of of them want to do something in law enforcement other than policing, such as CBSA uh, or private investigations. So Mm -hmm. the recruiting department has a a lot of work on their hands trying to, number one, get the applicants. Uh, and like I said, it's not just a Toronto problem. It's a, across the GTA, different police services, trying to get the applicants and trying to get the qualified applicants. So last year, the Ford government uh, removed the post-secondary requirement. And all you need now is a high school diploma, which I think may uh, cause problems down the road. You don't uh, love the policy? I don't love the policy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think to make up for that policy is to really push further education uh, after hiring, whether that's through our college or through uh, post-secondary courses that can be taken part-time or uh, partnerships with different post-secondary education uh, institutes for active police officers. Is that just about age or is that maturity level? Like, is there a risk of having, you know, ought to be honest, like y- you want to you want a diverse uh, group of, of police. So you want men, women, you want people that look like your community. And that means different colors, different races, different nationalities, but it probably means a balance of age. You don't want, you don't want to tilt it too far to have a younger force, less experienced force instead of an older force. Like you can't have too many 22, 23, 24 year olds, to be honest. You can't. And you know, I was 21 years old when I first started. And I often say to people, you wouldn't want 21 year old Hank Atzinga responding to that call. You got it. Uh, yeah. You want 50 year old Hank Atzinga responding to that call. Mm-hmm. And so that's an issue of supervision. That's an issue of experienced officers and retaining experienced officers. And we've had that problem as well in the past where experienced officers leave for other police services because it is tough to work as a police officer in a metropolitan area like Toronto. So mm-hmm. recruiting the right people uh, and retaining the right people is an ongoing battle. All right, let's get a couple more on this. Bill, uh, phone call from Bill uh, about the RCMP. Bill, you're on with Hank and Zinga, 640 Toronto Crime Specialist. Go ahead, Bill. Hey, Hank, thanks for your service. Uh, policing, I can imagine, is a pretty nasty uh, line of business to be in. But um, I watched the thing with uh, Menzoid and uh, Rebel News last week and the police officer, the RCMP. Honestly, I looked at it and I thought the, the police force, their conduct was deplorable. Um, you think, I think that actually hurts policing when that kind of stuff goes on, especially when it's that public and it goes that viral. It's gone around the world. Okay. Thanks for the call, Bill. What, yeah, we all saw the video. We all had a thought on it, maybe several thoughts. What did you think? Yeah, you know what, and I've I've spoken with David Menzies in the past, and he's he's definitely a handful, but uh, he's he's out there doing his job, and you know the minister was just about to get into her car uh, when that little brush 
uh, happened. Uh, you know, did the police officer really have to do anything right there? Uh, and did he really have to arrest him? I think that's going to be a question to resolve by their professional standards investigation. But sometimes you need to take the path of, of least resistance there. And uh, like I said, the minister was in her car on her way. And okay, uh, see you tomorrow, Mr. Menzies. Let's get another one. That's uh, so interesting. Rob, you're on 640 Toronto, Toronto today with uh, Hank and Zinga. Go ahead, Rob. Hank, thank you for your service. Um, like I was telling the producer, some of my fondest memories uh, growing up were of the, the uh, school resource officer, Officer Gordon. I'll never forget him or the people that worked with him. They would bring boxes of food to the school for the, for the less privileged children and, and do, hot, do hot dog barbecues for us and pitch slow pitch. What are your thoughts on, on the termination of the school resource officer program? Uh, I look at, at, at the, ev- the evidence that's on the news every single day, post Desmond Cole and his blacktivism to end the SRO program. And now I see what's happening with my kids in high school and the very same kids that were, 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 were supposedly marginalized by the police are now by and large the ones affected by the criminal element in the school. And there is no police police presence there. There's no respect for the police anymore. Okay. There's no personal relationship with the police. All right, right. Hey, you know, Rob, I want to I want to give I want to give Hank plenty of time to answer. I just didn't want to run you up against the clock. Thank you for the phone call and and Hank, go ahead and respond. You know, I th- I think there's huge benefits to the school resource officer program, but obviously some people felt intimidated by it, by that uniform presence in school. So there might be a smarter way to do it and still have that relationship and that, and that presence uh, available t- to students in school who need it. And, you know, bringing officers in uh, to high schools. I've done presentations in, in high school auditoriums before on career days and, and incidents like that. And it's always been very positive for me. So yeah. uh, sad to see the SRO program go, uh, but I think we can put other avenues in its place. It's tough too, isn't it? Because we all grew up with a different experience. So whereas I would have, you know, looked in awe as a young little boy to a, a police officer coming to our school, I also have to understand, I don't know that it's as much about race as it is just, just you know, being marginalized. I, 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 I get that other people don't look at police the same way I would have looked at the same way when they were 13, 14, 15, Hank. It's, it's, it is that balancing act. You're trying to respect everything, but at the same time, you're like, well, what would most people want? And I think those are fair questions. Yeah, you know, uh, my experience was probably very similar to yours. Uh, you know, a funny little story. Uh, a few years ago, yeah. I, I, I came home and there was a uniformed police car uh, on the street near my house uh, doing speed enforcement. And I went to say hello to the officer. And I recognized him from uh, when I was a teenager, right? And I said, oh my God, we were terrified of you when we were kids. So uh, different for everybody, I think. Absolutely. Hey, I loved having you in today. Thanks very much. And I know we'll be chatting and you'll be chatting on all the other shows as well. It's great to have you in the fold here. Thanks, Greg. It was uh, great to be here. Hank and Zinga joining us on Toronto Today.